Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Meg Terrell. Meg is the biotech and pharmaceuticals reporter at CNBC. This is a big job. People that control billions in investment dollars regularly keep an eye on the cable TV investment channel for breaking news and analysis on interest rates, the stock market, currencies, and more. Now, Meg makes sure they get timely, factually accurate, and contextual coverage of biotech and pharmaceuticals. Somebody needs to do this and do it well. We all know that biopharma is an important part of the global economy and that it's not very widely understood. Meg does it well. Before joining CNBC, Meg showed her reporting chops as a business journalist at Bloomberg News. Some listeners may also recall that Meg and I served as co-hosts of the Signal podcast for STAT from its founding in 2015 to the spring of 2017. I had a good time doing that, even though it was a nights and weekends side project for the both of us. I'll say from firsthand experience that Meg is an excellent reporter, writer, and a good colleague and friend. It was fun in this episode to ask her a few things about her life and about television reporting that were new to me. She also has a personal announcement to make on this show. We have to listen to the end to hear it. And before you get started, if you enjoy listening to these in-depth interviews, you'll love reading Timmerman Report, my subscription publication. This is where you can read in-depth features and focused research articles that you won't find anywhere else. You can subscribe to Timmerman Report for $149 a year per person and expect a couple in-depth articles per week. Discounted subscriptions are available for academic institutions and for corporate groups that obtain sharing licenses. For details, ask me at luke.timmerman at protonmail.com. Now, join me and Meg Terrell for the long run. Okay, with me today is Meg Terrell, the biotech and pharmaceuticals reporter from CNBC. Great pleasure to have you on the show today, Meg. Oh, it's my pleasure to join you. And, you know, of course, talking with you in this way brings me back to our old podcast, The the Signal Days. Yes, yes. So for listeners who may not know, Meg and I are former partners in crime, co-hosts of The Signal podcast for STAT from, uh, I guess it was 2015 to 2017, maybe a year and a half. It was a good time, but it was really kind of a nights and weekends side project for both of us. We both have our day jobs, but we really, I I really enjoyed it. And I I think you did too, working with Jeff Delvisio and Katie Heiler, Jocelyn Gonzalez. Yay team. Yay signal. Yeah, no, that was really fun. And I think our episodes are still online and they're still on iTunes. If people want to go get some vintage Luke and Meg Signal podcast. (laughs) There you go. Well, so um, one of the things that I said to myself when I started this show, the long run about a year ago, was that I'd like to have Meg on at some point and sort of turn the tables. So I'm really really (laughs) glad that you could join me because really you do play an important role in the industry as a a highly visible person covering the, the sector on CNBC in a in an in-depth and in a smart and timely way that you don't see that often on on television. So it's it's greatly appreciated. Oh well thank you so much. And you of course know and um, I'm sure other people could imagine that you've always been a role model of mine in the biotech reporting world. I remember 
I took your slot covering biotech at Bloomberg, I guess maybe two or three reporters after you had moved along to Xconomy. And I used to find your old stories on the terminal and I would always be so excited. I was like, oh, Luke Timmerman byline, this is going to be a really good story. And I've always felt that way since. So it's exciting to have been able to collaborate with you and to keep getting to work together. I was really two or three reporters ahead of you. You're making me sound old, Meg. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get there. But as you know, with this show, I like to uh, start out by letting the listeners know a little bit about the person and uh, where they come from. So let's take it all the way back with your life story. Where did you come from? Where did you grow up? So I always have trouble answering that question because I grew up on both coasts. <laughs> I was born in Massachusetts and I lived there until I was 13. My parents are both scientists, which explains a lot of why I love this space so much. And my dad was teaching at UMass Amherst um, for that time. So, um, so that's where I grew up until I went to high school. <laughs> and then we moved from a tiny 3,000 person town in rural Western Mass to, um, to Pasadena, California in 1998 uh, when my dad moved to Caltech and my parents still live there and my dad's still at Caltech and uh, my mom who is also a scientist didn't stay in academia and she's now retired but she um, has this amazing life where she hikes around the Southern California mountains and looks for rare plants. <laughs> she's basically a botanist in her spare time even though she um, her degrees in um, biochemistry. So that's kind of how I grew up on both coasts. Wow. Maybe next time in California, I can get her to guide me on some hike there. <laughs> oh, she would love that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I like to hang out with people who know more than I do about the outdoors, especially. <laughs> but okay, so uh, Western Massachusetts, Amherst, w what uh, fields of science were your parents involved in? Uh, my dad is a chemist focusing on non-natural amino acids, and my mom was focused on biochemistry. And, you know, I actually am embarrassed to say I don't know or I don't remember what she did her, her work in, but she, she was also at UMass for her Ph.D., and my mom went to Wellesley undergrad, which is also where I went. And actually every um, woman on my mom's side of the family going back to 1920 went to Wellesley except for one or two. So I was the 10th person in my family and the fourth generation to go there. Wow. <laughs> Although I did not study science. Yeah. That's quite a tradition. Now, do you have any siblings? I do. I have an older brother. He works in Washington, D.C. in sort of foreign policy. Um, and he's been doing that for a long time. He has the most exciting job. He's worked in Afghanistan and he's worked in South and Central America. He speaks a million different languages. I feel very underaccomplished when I compare myself to my brother. <laughs> okay. So it's the two of you and, and your dad. I mean, I have actually interviewed your dad for my book about Lee Hood. Your dad is a super yeah. impressive guy. I think he's one of the very few people elected to all three national academies. <laughs> he's a, a senior oh. <laughs> guy on the Caltech faculty. I mean, this is a, th th there's a lot of science I imagine being talked about around the dinner table in the house. Right. Or was there? Yes, that is a, that's always been a fixture of my, of my childhood and, and currently, and now I have a huge interest in it and I feel so incredibly lucky to have my parents who I can call up and ask them to explain anything to me in science. And they just give me a very, you know, easy to explain, easy to understand explanation of these complex topics. But when I was little, I did not appreciate it actually to the extent that um, my dad had these tapes of his lectures and we called them the daddy show. 
And if we were bad, they would threaten us. And they'd be like, if you, if you don't stop doing that, you're going to have to watch the daddy show. <laughs> We'd be like, no, not the daddy show. So, um, it used to be a punishment, but now I actually see it as a huge, huge benefit. <laughs> well, maybe they were just really good bedtime stories to get you to go to bed when you were yeah. little, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I was really cool on take your dad to work day or take your parents to work day. My dad came in, I remember in second grade and he brought, um, liquid nitrogen with him. And I still remember he touched it with his bare hands and he told us, you know, don't, you know, you shouldn't do this. And then he took this thing out, you know, he didn't touch it very long, obviously, but, um, he dipped this racquetball in the liquid nitrogen and then he threw it against the wall and it shattered. And I was just like the coolest kid in second grade for a couple of weeks after that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's a, a classic uh, visual, highly visual experiment. <laughs> well, so now you, you, you grew up in this environment with a lot of science around you, but, and you, you end up going to Wellesley for university, but I think you studied English and music. So what were you thinking that you yeah. might do going to become a, a humanities person? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I <laughs> I mean, I've kind of always wanted to be a journalist. I've always loved talking to people and learning and telling stories and writing. But I also, I've always loved music. And um, when I got to Wellesley, I discovered how much I loved studying it. I mean, in addition to playing it and performing it, I started studying music theory and um, really, really fell in love with that and was kind of surprised to the extent that I did and kind of realized a, a sort of love for math um, in that as well. I never really studied math, but um, just found the, the different concepts of music theory. And I got really into sort of atonal composition and things like that, which are very defined by patterns. I really got into that. And I, I thought about pursuing music as a career, not, not really performance, but more theory and composition. But, uh, I kind of got one over by English. I just love to read and I love to write. And, um, I probably took a similar number of classes in both of, you know, English and music, but by the time it came time to graduate, I was pretty sure I wanted to pursue journalism, but I was trying to combine my love of both those things. And I thought about being an arts critic <laughs> So I actually went to journalism school um, out of Wellesley because, frankly, I wasn't sure how to get a job in journalism. <laughs> and um, I went to Northwestern in Chicago, where I had always wanted to live. And it was an awesome program. But I took a class in arts journalism, and I just found myself thinking, why does anybody care what I think about, you know, this play or this composition or whatever it is. And I just wasn't super compelled by it. And I ended up just in this business journalism course because my advisor was this amazing guy, Joe Mathewson. And he just said, you know, why don't you take the course? And I was like, oh, I'm going to hate this. It's going to be awful and so boring. And I found when I got in the course, I actually found it super interesting. Again, there's that sort of mathematical component to it. Not that I'm some math whiz or anything like that, but I just, I kind of appreciate using my brain in that way, but also business stories are incredibly personal. And so I found I was just telling people stories and really kind of writing about how life works. And I really found that super fun. So 
that led to an internship at Bloomberg, which I pursued because it paid. (laughs) I was um, relegating myself to a life of poverty as a journalist in my mind. I was thinking I'll never make any money, but this is an internship that pays $20 an hour. And I really hoped I got it. And then I miraculously did. And it was in New York. So I moved to New York. Did you write for the school paper uh, at Northwestern or Wellesley? At Wellesley, I did. It was a 12-page weekly paper called the Wellesley News. I was the arts editor my senior year, so I mainly wrote about Wellesley's arts scene. And then at Northwestern, I was in the graduate program, so we had this sort of Medill news service type wire service where we actually wrote for area papers. And so I got to do that, and that was pretty cool. And then you do a, if you want, you can do a summer session or or a semester in Washington, D.C. So I got to do that. And then you are actually the D.C. correspondent for some paper that, you know, subscribes to the Medill News Service. And um, I was the D.C. correspondent for the York Daily Record. Yeah, <laughs> so that well, was actually pretty cool. Th- this is one of the great things about journalism is that it covers so many walks of life. Uh, I mean, you could write about science and that's obviously a great way for understanding the natural world. And with arts, you know, the old saying, uh, art imitates life or life imitates art. But that's really interesting that you found business as this great lens for understanding the world. I mean, that's part of what I see too. Yeah. And it was really unexpected to me. It was never something I was interested in. And I knew absolutely nothing about it. I mean, I still remember the first time I heard the word EBITDA, <laughs> which is the, the abbreviation for earnings before interest taxes, EBITDA, depreciation and amortization. There you go. Um, and it's just, a, yeah, <laughs> just a way of explaining, you know, earnings without these, these other things attached to it. And I just thought like they were saying this funny phrase that was unique somehow to, you know, whatever industry I happened to be, you know, covering at the time. I think it was casinos actually. And then I realized it's this term that everybody uses. But, you know, I think I didn't even realize, like, you could own stock in companies like Coca-Cola. I mean, I was like, I didn't know anything about this stuff. And it was all a brand new world to me. And I just thought it was so cool. Wow. So you end up interning at Bloomberg and then getting your first job out of school at Bloomberg, right? I was super lucky. So I went for this three-month internship, moved to New York. And I'm not one of those people who, for my entire life, thought, I'm going to live in New York someday. I I didn't really care about living in New York, but that's where the job was. So I came, I had to find an apartment situation that would somehow work out for three months in case I didn't get hired. But then at the end, I did get hired. I felt super lucky. And they put me on this team called Small Caps, which basically was this new team they were forming to cover small publicly traded companies. And at Bloomberg, a small cap is anything with a market value of up to $2 billion. So that was the end of 2007 and the beginning of 2008. And that was an incredible time to start a job in business journalism because the economy was collapsing. And so a lot of companies that are huge, well-known brand names became small caps. (laughs) And so I was covering companies like Kodak and Blockbuster and Six Flags, companies that have these incredibly well-known names, but we're going essentially through bankruptcy or heading toward bankruptcy. And so I learned just a ton about business that way. And it was a really interesting time to get to learn this stuff. It's kind of like the classic general assignment reporter who, you know, go, go out and cover all these things that 
fall between the cracks of somebody else's yeah. beat, like a senior reporter. Like, so, so this is, you know, where I come in, right? I was on the staff at Bloomberg at the time and U.S. biotech reporter in San Francisco. And my job was to cover all the big companies in biotech, Genentech mm-hmm. and Gilead and Amgen, all the ones that the editors knew their names, <laughs> knew were important. Right. <laughs> and if I wanted to propose like, well, hey, there's an interesting small company over here that you've never heard of, they'd kind of look at me like, oh, you know, forget about it. Why don't you go back to, you know, covering those big companies that <laughs> people know. But this is a great <laughs> opportunity for you to, uh, to really learn. How did small caps morph into more of a biotech type beat for you? <laughs> so I was on that team for two years covering a lot of those more consumery names. And then they decided to dissolve that team, maybe because all of these small companies don't get a lot of readership on the terminal because they don't have as many investors. I don't know. But um, oh, they would, we were they all would dispersing. Look, they, they would tell me, you know, like, oh, 25 people read that story, Luke. Why don't you go back right. and write something about Amgen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we were all getting moved along and... um I I had the choice basically between covering consumer products and pharma. And I just thought pharma sounded a lot more interesting. And of course, I had the connection to science because of my family. So I just decided to do that. And so I joined the, the pharma team at or the health team at Bloomberg in the summer of 2009. And at Bloomberg, it's amazing. They have the luxury there of, of having, you know, a reporter cover just a few companies. So I was assigned to three companies, Johnson & Johnson, Eli Lilly, and Abbott Labs, which hadn't yet split into Abbott and AbbVie. <laughs> And then I, you know, I covered sort of general science and health as well. So I got to write study stories, which was an incredible way of learning more about science and more about how to write about science. But then also, you know, I spent all my time focusing on three companies. (laughs) So that was pretty interesting beginning. Well, but Bloomberg, it's also just this very focused and disciplined and competitive place. I mean, I I think of it as just a great training ground for a journalist starting out. In fact, I recommend young people, if they ask where to go, (laughs) this is one of the places. So many senior people, really good, work hard and know what they're doing. I agree so much. I mean, obviously I don't have experience having started out anywhere else, but I can't imagine a better bedrock of training than I got at Bloomberg. I ended up staying there for seven years and I just feel so well prepared to take on all different kinds of stories from straight science stories to Earning stories on any different, you know, company or beat to, you know, complicated uh, corporate feature stories. I just feel like I got great training there and their focus on accuracy. You actually got, you know, knocked down, as you know. I mean, all of your your uh, mistakes and your triumphs get quantified into a number that ranks you at the end of the year and your pay is directly tied to that number. And so you need to cut down the number of corrections. You need to increase the amount of news you're breaking uh, to bring your number up. Um, And that was good training. I mean, all of that stuff is good training to be a good reporter. Well, another thing I I agree that the emphasis on accuracy, really important and clean, clear writing not a lot of flowery language or flourishes. I mean, this was a just the facts kind of place in a good way. But there was also, I think, a way of thinking about the future there. Because it's a financial audience in nature, they're thinking about where the puck is heading. 
whose stocks are moving in what direction up or down. And so, as you know, you would prepare templates for your earnings. Very simple enough. If you're thinking about a company's earnings a couple weeks in advance, where might it go? What might be driving? What might be the major trend if you're, say, Gilead Sciences, and you've had three years on the market with an HCV drug kind of thing. And that, that I think that was a really good mental muscle to exercise, to, to think about where you really think stories are going. Absolutely. And I think Bloomberg, I mean, it's, I think it still thinks that way. And I think it's changed in interesting ways, even in the four or so years since I've left. I think it's become a lot more lively. <laughs> it's, uh, its writing style has become a little more creative, I think, without losing that important, you know, just the facts and forward-looking focus. I think it's, you know, they still do great stuff. <laughs> I wish yeah. I could access all of my old stories, but <laughs> they have a paywall on their website. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, me too. <laughs> Every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So this was about four years ago. How did this come about with CNBC? You get the call to interview for a job on television? That must have been, I can imagine that would be a little nervous or a little intimidating at first. How did that happen? Well, it didn't quite happen that way. Just rewinding a little bit and thinking about how I ended up in print journalism versus TV, which was my plan. I did an internship in college at a local TV station. And through that internship, I got some really valuable information about myself, which was that I didn't want to work in television journalism. <laughs> Why not? Or at least that I didn't. I, I was working on a, a local news show, like an evening news show, and I just found it really hard to sink your teeth into anything. It just seemed like, you know, you're running around like a chicken with your head cut off. And the stories are all about whatever's the most visual, like a fire or a flood or whatever it is. And that stuff is so super important. But I, I just didn't feel like I enjoyed it. I just didn't find it very rewarding, I guess. Although local news is so incredibly important and that work is rewarding if you're doing it. But at the time, it just, it really wasn't for me. And I also just felt like journalism should be about the work. And I just felt like pursuing, you know, an on-camera career was so much about your appearance and you wanting to be famous. And that just didn't appeal to me. So when I went to Northwestern, I had to decide between the print track which they called reporting and writing and the TV track. They also had a magazine track and a quote unquote new media track, which probably is just everything now. Right. But at the time it was like online journalism or whatever in 2006, 2007. Anyway, and so reporting and writing was what I did. And I was super happy to be doing that. So I deliberately chosen not to do TV. And then when I was at Bloomberg, you know, occasionally Bloomberg television would put the print reporters on if they had an interesting story. So I'd been on two or three times and Mike Huckman, who covered biotech and pharma for CNBC for a long time before me and had left and started a career in PR, which he's still doing, got in touch after an appearance I did and said, you know, if you're interested in this, I'm happy to talk with my old boss um, at CNBC because they've never replaced me. And I thought, oh, well, you know, I'm kind of ready to move on from Bloomberg, but I don't really want to do TV. Do I have to be sure I want to do TV if I take if I go to this meeting <laughs> and Mike was like, yeah, you can't go to a meeting with a TV station and not be sure you want to do television. Why is that? Because they, they, so... <laughs> they thought that they needed some help with actual writing of stories on their website. Was that that part of the 
No, I just, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do this job, Uh (laughs) but I was sure that I was ready to move on from Bloomberg. I had been there for seven years and I started as an intern. And in a lot of ways, when you start a job like that, you feel like you never grow out of it. I was still the youngest person on the team. I wasn't really sure what my path forward was and I loved the beat. So I wanted to stay with the beat, but I was ready to try it maybe somewhere else. And, you know, there aren't a ton of jobs for pharma and biotech reporters out there. So um, so this was open and I thought, well, it would be interesting. So I went into the meeting that Mike set up for me very kindly. And um, I just really hit it off with Nick Diogan, the editor-in-chief of CNBC, and had what I thought was a really great meeting <laughs> then. He'll tell you this story if you ever talk to him, but um, it was a year before CNBC hired me and he wasn't sure I could do TV. He wasn't sure I wanted to do TV. I guess he picked up on some of that ambivalence from me. And um, I emailed him like every three weeks, just reminding him I was there. And and at that point I decided, yes, this is what I want to do. I think this is the right next step. And um, every couple of weeks, and I tried to do more TV at Bloomberg to, to kind of build up my experience and to show that I could do it. And I think he still has some of the emails and sometimes he'll just read them to me to embarrass me, (laughs) but how persistent I was and just telling him like, I'm here, I want this job, I can do it, don't forget about me. And finally, um, finally he did. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm sure that made a difference, especially adding up over time. Well, I know, like I said at the top, it's been a, a good thing for for you and, and for the sector too, because I, I think there was at least a couple years of vacancy there after Mike left CNBC when there was no real outlet. Uh, I mean, maybe I'm sure there were people who would pick up stories occasionally, but not a dedicated beat reporter really out there doing enterprising stories and doing more than kind of reacting to the news. It actually was four years between when Mike left CNBC and when I started. And he actually pointed that out. And I'm so grateful to him for, you know, making this happen for me. I, I wouldn't have done it without him. And, you know, he had huge shoes to fill. I, I remember seeing him at conferences when he was the CNBC farmer reporter and just thinking, oh, my God, it's Mike Huckman. I better stay nearby because there's going to be news. <laughs> and, yeah, so it's a new thing for CNBC, too. And it's been kind of fun getting to to kind of reforge the path there because Mike's producer had also left. So so there wasn't an overlap. If you enjoy listening to these interviews with biotech newsmakers, you'll love reading Timmerman Report, my subscription publication. You can subscribe to Timmerman Report for $149 a year per person and expect a couple in-depth articles per week. Discounts are available for academic institutions. Some of the best research institutions in the U.S. are signed up. MIT, UC Berkeley, University of Chicago, USC, UCLA, to name a few. Many top pharma companies have upgraded from individual subscriptions to group sharing licenses. For details, ask me at luke.timmerman at protonmail.com. And is your company interested in raising its profile among biotech industry leaders? Consider sponsoring the Long Run Podcast. I'm only allowing room for one or maybe two sponsors of this show over a year's time. If you work in a top-notch organization with something of value to offer the biotech industry and you are willing to be patient, sponsorship of the long run could be a rewarding experience. Ask me about it at luke.timmerman at protonmail.com. 
Now, you alluded to this earlier about television being a visual medium. We all know that. We also know that <laughs> biotech and pharmaceuticals is a pretty, let's shall we say, technically complex set of subjects can be challenging for reaching a large audience. You know, you and I can nerd out on p-values, you know, for hours at a time, but uh, <laughs> somebody does need to watch this stuff. So how do you think about the challenge of telling these stories in a compelling way on television? Oh, actually, I find that you can really hook people on these stories because this stuff affects all of us and everybody cares about um, new medicines and, you know, making sure that science is moving forward because it might ultimately benefit them or a loved one. And I find the best way to really get people engaged in stories, of course, as we all do, whether it's print or a radio or a TV, is to use people, to have real people in your stories to show how the complex science and medicine really affects everybody's lives. So the best stories I've been able to tell have definitely had human characters telling them for me. And then, you know, you kind of fill in the details around that character-driven story. Yeah, yeah. I think it, that's a great place to start. And then you can start getting into, well, you know, the statistical significance of this or that. I mean, you have to... <laughs> <laughs> the, the stock went up, but, you know, we don't really have the, the final set of, of evidence, you know, to say that this is a, a real drug or not. I mean, that's where you get into the, the nuance and, and part of what I think makes this interest, industry so interesting. Yeah, I often feel very lucky that our jobs exist because, you know, sometimes people will say, this happened to me the other day on Twitter, I had put the news out that the FDA had approved the first generic version of the EpiPen. And with the announcement, I put what the maker of the generic forms stock was doing. That was Teva because the stock was up like 6%. And also what Mylan stock was doing. Mylan makes the EpiPen because a lot of the people who follow me on Twitter follow me because they want biotech stock information. And somebody responded to me and was like, I can't believe you would put stock ticker information next to this important news. How vacuous is that? I mean, this is like a life or death situation. And I didn't respond because it was pretty clear the person, you know, wasn't coming from a place where they wanted to have like a real discussion about it. But, you know, I think it's our jobs are to cover this complex industry for people who are making financial decisions about it. And that's a really important part of the ecosystem that makes these things possible. So it's not that we don't care about the human side. I care so much about that. And I think the person also said, what if you had a a relative or a loved one with peanut allergy. And I was like, I do. Somebody very close to me has a peanut allergy and I care deeply about them being able to get the treatment they need. But also investors care about what happens to the stocks. And I think that you and I and, and the others in our space are in this lucky position to get to really dive into the details of things because investors care about them. And that creates an audience for this incredibly nerdy world that we like to inhabit. Yeah, well, I think a really good story can include different elements that appeal to different audiences. So, you know, the nature of CNBC or Bloomberg or the Wall Street Journal, it has a financial audience, right? So in that case, the stock price is totally relevant. Now, if you're writing for Time Magazine or something or, or Nature or something, they might be just more interested in the science and how to explain that to an educated person. They might leave out that 
that bit about the stock. But that just kind of reflects the the identity of the publication. But still, like great stories can include all multiple elements, I think. I definitely agree with you. And I think the best people doing this work or the people who produce the best work in, in our space, like folks like you and Matt Herper, you find ways to tell these really compelling stories that tie all of that in. And, you know, every time I read a Matt feature in Forbes, I'm like, oh, I love this story. Just the storytelling is so great. But then also there's all this great business and all this great science. And, you know, it, it really leaves it in well. That's uh, that's how I think of it, too. I mean, a really good story has some business and some science and some human drama maybe some ethical issues. It's just like the great pageantry of who we are as people. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But down to some brass tacks here. What, what is a typical day like for you? Do you get up early and check the market or like how does this, uh, when you get to work? A typical day for me, if I don't have some kind of you know, news on early is actually pretty not crazy. <laughs> I'll, you know, I'll leave for work around eight and, um, and get in and I'll be reading, you know, check all my emails and read Twitter and read different n- news sources and, you know, check on the usual suspects, uh, and then kind of see what the day brings. And I'm usually working on a couple big projects at a time. And so try to make progress on those. But the thing about TV is you have to be physically present for it, <laughs> which is very different for me from print where you can just write a story, file a story anywhere. For TV, you have to be physically present and you have to be physically presentable, <laughs> which takes time. So you get to work at CNBC. I get there, you know, by 8.45 or 9 and I'm going to the makeup chair for half an hour in the morning, which is an incredible luxury. I feel so lucky to not have to worry about making myself look presentable anymore. And our team is just insanely amazing. So that's a great part of this job. And then from there, you know, just go on to either cover whatever news is breaking of the day or or working on bigger features. If there, if it's a big news day and I know I need to start early or I've got a, a feature story rolling out, the hours can be ridiculously early. Our programming starts at 5 a.m. Uh, on the East Coast. And if you're on the West Coast, <laughs> you are have to work East Coast hours. So when I cover the JP Morgan conference, we try not to schedule anything at the beginning of the East Coast day. And most of what we do at JP Morgan is interviews and nobody's joining us at 2 a.m. Pacific time. But people do join us at 4.30 a.m. Pacific time during JP Morgan. So um, TV has the most insane hours I've ever experienced. Yeah, I think you don't get much sleep at JP Morgan there in San Francisco. <laughs> no. <laughs> I've seen you at the end when we're all dragging around the block. <laughs> so now, how do you divvy up your tasks with a producer? You you write your own material, right? Most of the time or all of the time? Yeah, almost all of the time I do. We have some really amazingly talented producers from whom I learn a ton about how to make stories work for television because I am I still consider myself pretty new to this just four years into this job. So uh, I work with different producers. I've been working with Jody Gronick a lot, which who a lot of people in the biotech world will know because she's often with me at ASCO or JP Morgan. And we work together to, to figure out how to book a conference, you know, which interviews we want to do, which stories we want to tell. It's really collaborative. TV is such a team sport. How long do your segments typically go? Interviews can be, you know, anywhere from three to, to 10 minutes. To tell a story on TV, you typically don't get more than a minute and a half. 
I once had to explain why all of the CRISPR biotech companies' stocks were moving wildly in 30 seconds. And that included explaining what CRISPR is. <laughs> not uh, not an easy thing, especially when, as I recall, there have been a couple different controversies where a paper gets published and maybe it's true or maybe it can't be reproduced and it's just <laughs> difficult. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that's been really, really interesting. Um, and those stocks have been just incredibly volatile. Sometimes there won't even be news and they'll be moving, you know, five or 6%. So that's biotech. So you bring people on for interviews. You also do the breaking news from conferences, say, and, and even just run of the mill during the week, breaking news, say on earnings. You also do enterprise stories. You said you, you typically have a couple going uh, at any one time that you just kind of chip away at over the long term. How do, how do you uh, carve out time for those things? Sometimes it can be hard if there's a lot of breaking news or if I'm sort of filling in on, on other things um, around CNBC. But I have an ongoing series that's called Modern Medicine. And right now we're doing it every quarter. And so I'm always kind of trying to think of the next idea for that series. The last one we did was really cool. It was about two different programs that are using food and behavior and education to combat type 2 diabetes. And we focused on Geisinger Health, which is doing this fresh food pharmacy program where it gives away free healthy food to low-income people who are in their healthcare system who have type 2 diabetes, not just to them, but everyone in their household. And the results that they've seen through that are just incredible. And it's also saving a lot of money. And it's just this brilliant way of approaching this huge problem. And it's so simple and in so many ways. I just thought it was just such an elegant idea. Um, and then the other part of the story was about Verda Health, which is using the ketogenic diet and a lot of coaching to help people try to reverse their type 2 diabetes. And the results are early, but they look really promising. And it was just a really fun story to get to work on. But that's kind of like just thinking about how, how am I going to shoot with, you know, the Dr. Feinberg from, from Geisinger, um, and Geisinger, of course, is in rural Pennsylvania. Um, how am I going to shoot with Sami Inkinen, the CEO of Verda? And he actually happened to be at a conference where I was going to be in Minneapolis. So we ended up shooting the interview there. Um, and he just kind of fit it in and, and try to figure out how to make it all work as you're going through your day-to-day -day stuff. I mean, similar to, I'm sure, how you plan your features versus your breaking news kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a balancing act for everyone in, in journalism. The, the this just in versus the longer term uh, enterprise stuff on television. I mean, I, I think uh, this is like still like despite all the changes that we have seen in the media over the last 10 to 20 years, the rise of social media in particular, television is still like this really, really strong, I mean, powerful outlet. So you, you have an important role to play. What What would you say? are some tips that you might have for people going on television? Because me personally, I, whenever I go on, I'm, I'm a little nervous. I can't bear to watch after I've been on. <laughs> I, I can imagine lots of other people can probably relate. So what, what, do you advise, oh, yeah. what do you advise to people? Well, I remember when you came on CNBC and I thought you did a fantastic job. I hope you watched that appearance back. I think my mom and dad watched it. They said I did a good <laughs> job, so I'll take their word for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, the few things I would say are 
think about what you want to say um, before you come on so that you can keep your answers very direct and if possible, short, because three or four minutes flies by and you don't get a lot of time to make your point. So, so folks who can kind of express themselves concisely always do a fantastic job. At the same time, we love, and I'm sure you do as well. I mean, any journalist loves when people speak plainly. You don't want people who come on and just kind of talk in circles and, and don't really say anything and don't really make a point. Um, then I'm sort of like, why, why did we even do this in the first place? You know? So people who come on and have a point of view, who really make themselves clear and do it in a concise way, those are my favorite guests. Now, another thing that I, I noticed you've been a little more outspoken about, I think over the last maybe couple years, some of the um, the conversation around diversity, sexism, we, we did a show on this at Signal. And, and I think <laughs> I think you've educated me in some respects in a, in a good way about some of the, the biases that we all walk around with and uh, should be aware of and, and try to correct for. I don't think you, you talk about this on television much, at least I haven't seen it, but what, what are your thoughts on how, um, how you can use your voice in a constructive way on, on this important issue? We haven't talked about it on television in this specific industry, although CNBC is actually making a big push in a, a sort of ongoing series it has called Closing the Gap, where it focuses on these stories. And um, my colleagues are doing some great work, and I've wanted to contribute to that. And I think it is a major problem in, in the biotech and pharma industries um, because it's this, it's this sort of combination of these often very male-dominated worlds of business um, and of science and academia. And there's tons of research on why this happens. And when we got to work on our Signal episode on this together, uh, you were a major driver of doing that. And I appreciated so much how much you cared about this issue and how much you cared about learning more about it. I'm so surprised every time I mention the lack of women representation in the C-suite. When I mention it on Twitter, the amount of vitriol I get back, I'm just, I wonder why, why people hate talking about it so much. Now, not everyone, like a lot of people agree, but you know, this idea that I think, you know, when John Milligan announced he was stepping down as CEO of Gilead, I think I said, you know, wow, wouldn't it be amazing if there was another woman CEO of a big biopharma? And people were like, well, if that's the only qualification, why don't we just have, you know, a bear do it or something just wacky? And I was like, what? <laughs> Clearly, whatever woman took that role would be an incredibly accomplished person. And I just don't get this kind of discourse, but and that's a lot of Twitter these days, I think. So I do try to think about how I can do better in, in my job with this issue. And I think a major part of it and something I struggle with constantly is um, making sure we have more diverse voices on TV um, and in my stories. When I go to cover JP Morgan or ASCO, it's incredibly difficult because we book based on the biggest newsmakers. And the biggest newsmakers at those conferences are the CEOs of the biggest companies in the industry. And the CEOs of the biggest companies in the industry are all men and for the most part, white men. And so when I look at like a photo lineup of our guests, I just put my head in my hands and I think I've failed. I, how do I do better with this? And so we have tried to start including 
interesting newsmakers who may not be just the biggest companies, um, but do allow us to increase our diversity, our diversity, but we have so much more ground to cover so much more we can do with that. I don't know how so many women do it on social media. I mean, I really salute you for taking on these kind of issues with the kind of trolling that you face, which frankly, a, a guy like me just doesn't face to the same degree. I could suggest Jackie Faust as a totally qualified candidate for Gilead CEO and not really get pushback on that. Uh, I don't think anybody would bat an eye like, oh, you know, that might sound reasonable, but <laughs> I don't know. I mean, Even if there... you made the point that she should, you know, be considered not just because she's a woman, but, but also because she's a woman. I mean, if you made it the point in that context, do you think you'd get pushback? I, I might, I might, but probably not to the same degree. If I said it like, look, she's a qualified candidate and maybe she should get a bonus point. For, uh, maybe we should we we should uh, move her up on the rankings because she's got this extra perspective going for her just by virtue of being a woman and having had a whole different set of experiences that will increase the 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 thought diversity around that boardroom table. It is surprising, I, as I said before, just the way people respond to these things. And I have to tell you, Luke, the way I've started dealing with it, I used to be very hesitant about this, but I'm not anymore. I just mute people. If they're super unpleasant and just insulting me for no reason, I just mute them. And then they go away and they don't know that I can't see their tweets, but I'm perfectly at peace. <laughs> I don't have to see it. It's great. Yeah. I, I have found that uh, people can waste a whole lot of energy sort of debating with the trolls or these anonymous people that just take pot shots. I, I, I consider it a waste of time. We've all got other things to do. You yeah. just got to develop a, <laughs> a thick skin. But I, I, I think there's absolutely no denying that, that women in the media have an extra set of crud <laughs> to deal with. Uh, I, mm -hmm. I, I'm embarrassed to admit this before the interview today. I, I had to Google you. <laughs> and, <laughs> That's and, okay. And on the, I, I hope you'd never do this because it's, it's, it's so trivial. But like on the first page of search results, you see something about, is Meg Terrell married? Now, <laughs> now nobody, like, I, I mean, I don't Google myself regularly, but I do once in a while just to see if, what people are saying. And nobody ever says, is Luke Timmerman married? <laughs> <laughs> Not an issue, right? <laughs> I also think it's kind of a funny question that people Google because I'm very clearly wearing a ring all the time on television. It's not a hard mystery to solve. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of some personal stuff, I, I know that something major has happened in your life. And if you are comfortable sharing it with the audience, uh, I'd like to let you uh, let people know. Well, as I was telling you earlier, I think as I see people, it'll become very, very apparent. But yeah, my husband, Josh, and I are expecting our first baby at the end of December, actually on Christmas Day, to be exact. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> Congratulations, <laughs> when, Meg. When, that is just awesome you. to hear. Thank you. We're, we're very, very excited. And when when our doctor calculated our due date and she's like, it's Christmas Day, that's a terrible due date. And I was like, I know. But hopefully he'll be early. It's a boy. And yeah, so we're about five months there. I, I feel like I'm just rapidly expanding 
And I try to stay, you know, sort of ribcage up on television just so it's not like so obvious, not that it matters, but pretty soon it'll be hard to, hard to hide, but, um, not that we're hiding it, but, can they move but up yeah, a, so can they move up a table or something to, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> luckily most of TV is shot that way anyway, but, um, but, but yeah, so, um, I'm having a whole new experience with the, the medical system. Funnily enough, as somebody who covers medicine, I was not a frequent doctor visitor. I almost never got checkups. <laughs> it's terrible, but um, I just never went to the doctor before. And now, you know, I'm going every month. I'm dealing with all sorts of bills and insurance, and it's giving me a new appreciation for this world that we write about. Interesting. So anything really surprising in those interactions? The things that get your kind of journalist brain churning for story ideas? Kind of. And and this isn't really super duper surprising, I guess, but the testing space has been very interesting to me. Just the the different experiences that people have. I mean, I'm on all these like message boards for pregnancy and, you know, I'm in like a, you know, by week or when you're expecting. So everybody's around the same time. And a lot of people didn't find out the sex of their baby until around now when they're getting their anatomy scan. And I found out at 10 weeks based on a blood test and because we were checking for chromosomal abnormalities and, and we were able to find the sex. And actually, my doctor called me. It was the day we were live at ASCO. <laughs> and I hadn't told anyone at work yet because we, I hadn't yet reached 12 weeks. And um, I went outside and she's like, do you want to know what it is? <laughs> and I was like, yeah. Um, and so I found out it was a boy at ASCO. And then I went back inside and I interviewed, you know, the CEO of Loxo or something. <laughs> Um, and I couldn't even tell my friend and my producer who was there with me because we hadn't told anyone yet. But, um, but anyway, the testing space has been really interesting in that way, just the, you know, diversity of experiences people have. And then also the way it's paid for. I got this bill in the mail from our testing provider that was thousands of dollars. And I was just so caught by surprise and was not ready for that. And, you know, went online and was kind of looking into the whole thing. And then I got another letter from my insurer uh, showing it had been adjusted down to like $50. And I'm like, why did this happen? How did this happen? And it's just so unclear and kind of scary. Well, there's all these bizarre elements of how healthcare gets delivered, which I think is it's kind of hard for us who pay a lot of attention to the, the R&D side of the industry. There's that whole interface with delivery and like billing. And it's, it's Byzantine and it makes, it makes your head hurt. So back up for, for a second. You said that you could tell the sex of the baby based on the blood test at 10 weeks? Yeah, yeah. Not <laughs> we, the ultrasound? No, at that point, we couldn't tell. Um, we were able to see and confirm visually um, in an ultrasound we did at um, around 16 weeks. But yeah, yeah, really early from the blood test. Now, did you um, did you also get, not, not to get too personal here, and we can cut this out if you want to, um, no. <laughs> did, did you get one of these non-invasive prenatal tests, you know, the genomic type yeah. of tests? Yes. So the, the blood test that we did was uh, to test for different chromosomal abnormalities, so Down syndrome. Oh. Um, and uh, there, are, there are a couple other things that they look for. And then, um, and, and I... To be honest with you, I'm actually not totally sure why we did that because I am not 35 yet, which I know is like this this cutoff, you know, for when you are suddenly high risk <laughs> in your pregnancy. And for my next one, I, I most likely will be. But anyway, so we did this, we did that test, and then you do um, another imaging test for 
the the risk of Down syndrome. And so there's a lot of things uh, you can kind of do. And then, but we haven't done any of the more invasive testing like amniocentesis or anything like that. Yeah. There's an amazing book for anybody else who's going through this called Expecting Better by Emily Oster. And she's an economist who has two kids. And as she was going through this process, she was incredibly frustrated by just the diversity of opinions she was getting from from doctors uh, and the medical literature. And so she just took an academic approach to it and compiled all of what the literature said on all these different topics. And I sped read that book when I found out I was pregnant and it was amazing. <laughs> really interesting, you know, because um, I mean, as, as health science reporters, you and I have both covered the rise of next-gen sequencing, uh, Illumina being at the front of the pack there and, and that technology getting better and better over the years and how it's enabled that application where you can look at the chromosomal abnormalities that might be there in, in those little trace amounts of, of fetal DNA that show up in the mom's blood. It's, it's pretty amazing that they can detect it at all and, and, and get it a reasonably accurate readout. And now, you know, when my daughter was born six years ago, this was still very much investigational. Like, people were talking about it. Venture capitalists were investing in it. But um, it hadn't really arrived. And now it's it sounds like it's it's pretty much standard fare. Yeah. I mean, it seemed that way to me, although I know just from reading all these boards that not everybody gets this. And I found that super interesting, too. And I've also gone through, you know, we've done like carrier testing and, and things like that just to see if there could be any, you know, worrisome genes we've passed along to the baby. And and it was funny doing that carrier testing because for stories, I've had my whole genome sequenced already. And of course, I've done 23andMe and you get a significant amount of information from that. And so I shared that with my doctor and, you know, she, so I actually downloaded my 23andMe file and sent it to her. Um, and at the time I didn't have access to my whole genome sequence document, although I've gotten it since. And anyway, we just, it's just interesting going through this from the, uh, the patient perspective versus the journalist perspective. What did your doctor think of that data? She didn't think the 23andMe data had enough information. A lot of the the carrier things you look for there are related to your background. Um, and so, you know, I don't have a high risk for sickle cell or things like that. So, you know, she didn't, she just thought we needed to do more. But what was interesting was I had sort of three things turn up in my whole genome sequence that I'm a carrier for, but one that they were sure, you know, and two that they weren't sure were sort of things to worry about. And my results from my doctor just turned up the one. It's called Bardet-Beetle syndrome or Bardet-Beetle syndrome. And then they tested my husband and um, he had nothing. So we didn't we didn't have anything to worry about there. So, so that was pretty good. He has good genes. Well, you're a good match then. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a wonderful life experience. I'm, uh, I'm really happy to hear that that's happening for you and Josh. And I, I'm sure many of the listeners wish you well and, and hope to See you soon on CNBC sometime there in 2019. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for joining me today on The Long Run. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Luke. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. And thanks for listening. Tell your friends about it on your favorite podcast app or on social media. And if you're interested in sponsoring the show and in raising awareness of your work among biotech industry thought leaders, send me an email at luke.timmerman at protonmail.com. See you next episode.